BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey everybody, this is Dwayne Johnson, and I'm here to tell you about a new documentary podcast series titled What Really Happened? Narrated by award-winning documentary filmmaker Andrew Jenks in coordination with our company, Seven Bucks Productions. Muhammad Ali saved a man from committing suicide. In 2007, Britney Spears' life became a train wreck. Next thing I knew, all her hair was off. Was Michael Jordan pushed out of basketball because of his gambling problem? You know, I'm doing fine. I'm strong mentally and strong physically. Did any of these happen the way we were told? I'm Andrew Jenks, a documentary filmmaker, and along with executive producers Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia, I go on a rogue investigation. This series will look deep into the unknown sides of historic news stories and then ask, what really happened? You can subscribe and listen to What Really Happened now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. This is the Vertical Podcast. The Vertical Podcast. Hosted by Chris Mannix. From interviews. Let's bring in John Wall. He's Reggie Miller. To the latest NBA news. To insights you won't get anywhere else. Rioting is bad. You shouldn't riot. Past episodes of the podcast can be downloaded in the iTunes Store and Google Play. Why wouldn't you go back? Subscribe and leave a rating or comment. Here he is. Speaking of guys putting their foot in the road. Chris Mannix. Yes. 
Joining me on the podcast this week, uh, Basketball Hall of Famer, former Sports Illustrated writer. I, I don't even know how many books this is for him. I guess we'll have to ask. But his latest is terrific. It's called Golden Days, West Lakers, Steph's Warriors, and the California Dreamers who reinvented basketball. He's Jack McCallum. What's happening, Jack? How you doing, Chris? Honor, honored to be on with you. <laughs> Don't you miss the what was it like you know the three and a half weeks we worked together at SI where our our paths crossed? Oh, it was it was longer than that. It might have seemed uh, it might have seemed brief, but uh, I knew you when I knew you before you had five hundred million Twitter followers and uh, and everything. So. You know what I I've always wanted to ask you was if would you have wanted Twitter to be around when you were covering it extensively in like the nineties and, and even in the eighties? Absolutely not. I mean, the the only reason when I went back, I started to do the uh, Dream Team book in 2012. And when I started research for it, you know, this was the most sort of anticipated, glorified team there ever was. But as I put in the book, the written record of them, you know, was not very large. I mean, could you imagine if there were a social media following Barkley oh. around the Rombles in Barcelona? There would have, I mean, there, every night there would have been, you know, two million tweets about it. So there was sort of when I was when I was covering the league in the beginning, there was just more original stuff that you could get. I mean, it's very very hard now, as I found out with the Warriors, it's very very hard because of social media to pick up the little nuggets of information that used to really comprise the kind of stories you did for Sports Illustrated. After you know doing this book and and really digging into uh, some of the players from those early '70s teams, if you could give Twitter during that time to one of those guys on that team, who would you like to have you know followed on Twitter if you could? Well, there's no doubt who it would not have been. The central character in my book, Jerry West. Jerry would have been well. Everything's just fine. <laughs> you know, if there if there was an off the record Twitter uh, account, you know, Jerry would have been really good. There's absolutely no question the guy you would have needed to follow was Wilt Chamberlain. You know, Wilt was, uh, I, when I started researching the book during the 71-72 season, Wilt was building this uh, home in the Santa Monica Hills, the accounts of which are sort of like sound like when the slaves built the pyramids. You know, we were carrying 230,000 crates of marble over the mountains. Well, Wilt was building this house, and I started writing about the house and the, this incredible housewarming party that he had during the season. He found time between two games against expansion teams to have this housewarming party during which he invited, you know, half of Los Angeles. And I'm writing it and I'm going, well, you know, it's not a book about Wilt's, uh, it's not a book, book about Wilt's home. So I kind of got it back down to uh, <laughs> two pages. But if there was anybody who would have been great, it would have been Wilt Chamberlain, and unfortunately, Wilt died in 1999, kind of right before the social media age. You had, you had written before for, for SI about Wilt, but you know when uh, when you started researching this book, how much more did you learn? I mean, was there something even more interesting that you learned about Wilt uh, in uh, in in sort of studying for this? I guess you know I I started getting into you know basketball as you know is always it's always best defined kind of by rivalries, you know, Bird Bird Magic and uh, Michael and the Pistons. And the original rivalry, everybody knew this, of course, was Russell and Wilt. I mean, and, and Jerry West and Oscar Robertson were two of the other ones. But 
Russell and Wilt kind of defined, you know, the the early part of the uh, the NBA throughout the uh, the nineteen sixties, and to research that to see their relationship kind of ebb and flow, I had sort of remembered this. I mean, unlike you, I'm old enough to have seen uh, Wilt uh, Wilt play live, but <laughs> I had forgotten a lot of the source of the tension between uh, Wilt and Russell. And it turned out, you know, toward the, the mid-60s, later 60s, when athlete activism sort of came along with Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown, well, Bill Russell kind of joined them. They were the magic troika of athlete activism. Wilt, meanwhile, decided to endorse uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. So you had uh, <laughs> Wilt became the ultimate Republican. And whether or not he truly believed it or it was just Wilt kind of being a contrarian, it was interesting to me to kind of dig into that, the political uh, relationship back then. And once again, you could have written a whole book about that, and it's just kind of a subtext. But those 60s and 70s era with those characters, when not everything was known to the public, uh, remains fascinating. Do you believe that Wilt in his prime would have been effective in today's NBA? I always, my bailout answer to that question always is, uh, I think that any player who was a great player in any era would figure out a way to be a great player in this era. However, it's a little more nuanced than that in the case of Wilt. The first thing is, is that no matter what the old timers will tell you about defenses, they were not sophisticated. I mean, the guys that were honest with you will tell you they basically played Wilt man-to-man. In fact, one of the astonishing things I unearthed during that season was when the Lakers were playing the game that ended up being the uh, the uh, the streak ender against the Milwaukee Bucks, Sharman was talking about, Bill Sharman, the coach of the Lakers, was talking about, you know, I think we're going to have our guards dig at Kareem a little bit when he gets the ball in the pivot. Well, no kidding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, today that's exhibit A. There's like 27 ways you're digging at the center, you know. So it was basically a mano a mano type of league. It was, it was in a strange way rougher. You know, you could put both hands on a guy. You could arm bar a guy. So there was a physicality to it, but there was not the sophistication. So Wilt, by and large, established a lot of those numbers by going against one player. Having said that, Wilt's physical prowess remains one of the most incredible athletes in the history of any sport. Wilt would have been a great player in this era. He just wouldn't have scored as much. He would have had to have gone to a passing game much earlier because he would have been double and triple teamed. I want to get into West and, and the genesis of this book, but you know the relationship between West and Wilt Chamberlain, two, two different guys in terms of, of where they came from, how would you characterize their relationship? Well, Jerry says it was, uh, I, I think any relationship with Wilt was kind of by definition, and I'm talking like I, I know him, I don't, but just from the extensive research, what I know about him, it was a little bit fraught. I mean, Wilt was in charge of the team. And that when he came to the Lakers in 1968, that became sort of one of the sticking points because Elgin Baylor at that point was the elder statesman, was the boss, was the, the captain, the guy that... Jerry never was that. You know, Jerry was the classic lead-by-example type of guy. So any relationship with Wilt, he tended to dominate 
the relationship. With Jerry, that was fine because Jerry didn't really push back much against that. And I think West, one of the things he really respected about Wilt was the way he changed his game in 71-72. However, later on in the career, after their championship season and the the, uh, season that I write about in the book, you know, Wilt came out with his own autobiography, during which he took a couple shots at Jerry West, and one of them being, hey, Jerry never spoke out. You know, Jerry never, you know, he was always played the the good guy act, the little boy act. And I think Jerry, Jerry reacted to that. He didn't like it, of course, but I think there was a measure of truth in that. And I think as time went on, particularly now when you talk to Jerry, I think those days when he didn't speak out, when he was not a labor leader the way that Oscar Robertson was, I think that affected Jerry a little bit and caused him to speak out a little more when he got with the Warriors, who, as you know, speak out on pretty much everything. Yeah. So Wilt was one of the Wilt would have fit in well with those uh, with those Warriors. Whether or not he would have had a political p- uh, position in opposition to Steph Curry, that would have been very interesting <laughs> if he would have been a uh, a Republican on the uh, the Warriors Democrat team. So it's it's a fascinating idea uh, for a book, Jack, and it's written through the lens of of Jerry West, obviously who was part of that uh, early '70s Laker team, and of course, uh, you know, worked for the Warriors uh, this past uh, this past season. Just just take me through kind of uh, the idea of it, uh, you know, how this all came about, and and how the the idea for this book came together. Well, I was uh, I was listening to a uh, a Doors album. We were having an email exchange about groups that we did not like, but we liked one song, and I liked L.A. Woman by The Doors. You know, you're too young to remember L.A. Woman by The I've Doors. I've heard it. Yeah, I know. Google it sometime. <laughs> YouTube it. It's a great song. I bing things. Yeah, okay. See, that's, you're even step ahead of me there. Um, and, and, and it came on, and I said, hey, what year was that? You know, it was 1971. Well, that's the year I started working as a sports writer. A couple other things happened. I started researching things about Los Angeles. It was the two years after the Charles Manson murders and all the, they were going on trial. There was some racial tension in the city. It was the year the Lakers won the 33 straight games. I loved Jerry West. I was, you know, covered him extensively in the 80s and 90s when he was a general manager. And I thought, wow, that'd be a great book to kind of go back and revisit that team. The idea of winning 33 straight games uh, the way they used to travel back then was absurd. Well, I suggested the proposal, but at the same time, the Warriors, this was back the season before last, were on their long winning streak. And the publisher suggested, uh, you know, could we somehow bring in a newer element? In other words, a nice way of telling me, that skews a little old, Jack, you know, <laughs> skews a little old. And they kind of said, well, we'll, you know, it'll be this kind of book for just the Lakers book, but if you put the Warriors to it, uh, Maybe we can make it a little bigger, a little more lucrative. I said, great idea. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? But but actually, then I was the one that said, well, you know, Jerry West suddenly came upon me as this link between the two teams. So it turned into a book kind of uh, about two eras through the kind of continuing lens of one guy who's been basically relevant in this league since 1960. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it, the guy's almost had... 60 years of relevance uh, in the NBA. It remains to be seen, you know, what's going to go on with the Clippers, but that was Jerry at that point. And you were, 
you know, one of the when I uh, when I first how I first discovered you were working on this book, actually, you were the guy that broke the news that that Jerry West was was leaving Golden State to go work. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you reported he was going to the Clippers, but it, that he was leaving Golden State. I think you did say going to the Clippers, right? Yeah. Well, Jerry had you know we had I had interviewed him many times during the season. Incidentally, every time I sat down with Jerry. I would go into this long preamble about the book I was doing. I'm still not even sure Jerry knows what it was about. (laughs) I would get 10 seconds into it, and Jerry would just, you know, would would start talking, and I'd turn the tape recorder on, and two hours later, I'd have, you know, some gold. The interview might have been all over the place. But about six weeks before the playoffs began, Jerry told, I mean, he just kind of stunned me that he told me off the record that he was... Uh, probably going, probably going to leave, and that the Warriors were doing some things that he didn't like. And I kept trying to, you know, I said, "Geez, well, can you tell him now? Keep it off the record." Then he finally told me that they had cut his salary, but he didn't want me to write it. And I kept dreading that it was going to appear in the, uh, you know, the Golden State area era newspaper area newspapers at any point because. Mm. That team is covered, as you know, pretty well, and there's some great journalists out there. But and then when it got time to, uh, I just said, "Look, I have to, uh, I have to deal with the story. I know it." And I was able to get the information from another source. And I finally told Jerry, "Look, I'm writing that you're leaving, and I'm going to put it on, uh, you know, SportsIllustrated.com because I've known this for a while and." Jerry just, I guess he was kind of okay with it, and mm. uh, the news kind of got out after that, and then I expanded on it a, a little bit in the book. How You mentioned that, that he has been able to stay relevant, whether as a player or an executive, really since the 60s. It, that's a rare skill, to be able to just translate errors in the way that Jerry has. When you think back of, of all the conversations you've had with him, what do you attribute that to? What do you, how do you explain his ability to continue to be, even now with the Clippers, such a valued uh, uh, basketball mind? You know, I was thinking about this. He His last season was 1974, and he didn't even play much of that. I think that's correct. So now you're talking about, you're talking about some 40. Since that time, he has basically been an executive. You know, he was a scout. He was sort of a half coach with Riley. Then he became general manager. Then he became the Mahaf in uh, in Memphis. Then he went back. He's a consultant. He's on the executive board. He's a part owner. So, yet somehow, this guy stay. This guy always comes across as player. I mean, David West told me something very interesting. Normally, when the old guys come down, you know, and start to tell you something about your game, it was always. Well, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, we did it this way. There was a whole spate of that during the Warrior season, as you remember. You know, Oscar and all these guys. Oh, hell, we could stop him. What are you talking about? You know, we could stop Curry. Jerry, for some reason, never does that. He never goes back and talks about what it was for him. David West told me that every time he came down, he gave him some little bit of information that remained relevant without shoving it down his throat. He did the same thing with Draymond Green. He did the same thing with Clay Thompson. He didn't mess around with Steph very much. Steph, he's not going to change Steph's shooting stroke. But every time he, he imparted some knowledge to those guys, it always sounded like something not of the old, we did it better in our day. 
And really, I think that's the key to why he's become relevant. He makes the moves he has to as a general manager. He's management all the way, but he communicates with players in a way that very few team executives, and in some cases coaches, have been able to do. When you were interviewing people for this book, like guys that played or coached in that era of the, 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 the early 70s and the 60s, did did you find that to be commonplace where, where they would be critical of the Warriors? I mean, how did they speak of the Warriors? Because you're right, in the last two years, whether it's Oscar Robertson or, or others, there just seems to be a bullseye on the Warriors, maybe because of the way they play or, or, or how they act. There's no question. You know, I found it a little bit. It was kind of comparable to when I did the Suns book a decade ago. You know, when you do something different, uh, there is always a resistance to it. You know, guys like Charles Barkley and all them. Now, the Warriors, the problem with criticizing the Warriors is that they've been so successful. And somebody talked about, you know, the place, the pieces that they have around them on the court. Well, the amazing thing about the Warriors is they play defense also. Mm-hmm. You know, you got these guys out there, and they somehow, the problem with putting five sort of guys that know how to space the floor and are unselfish and can shoot from distance and run the floor, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea, but they usually can't play defense. But the Warriors play defense, and that has kind of confounded the old guys uh, that wanted to criticize them. The most interesting guy probably was Rick Barry, because as you, I'm sure you either know Rick or have come across sure. him, yeah. Rick can pretty much find fault with anything. Oh, yeah. And uh, and sort of find some fault with the Warriors, but even he had to say that he uh, you know, DVRs them every game. He sees them live. He loves watching Steph Curry play, even when he throws the damn ball away. So I think probably, ultimately, they've probably got more converts than they have critics, simply because you you know you'd have to be an idiot not to appreciate the way the Warriors play the game and defend. Sure. Who did you find surprisingly insightful or surprisingly useful? As you were reporting this book, well, it's not it's not surprising that uh, that Steve Kerr. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, here's here's what it was with Steve. Steve, in a way, it was a strange season to be with him because every time, as you know, uh, you know, I'm getting up there in years, so I would go to Steve, and Steve's much younger than I am. However, he was going through these incredible physical problems, and every time I would talk to him. I could see him, you know, wrenching, stretching, wrenching his neck. And I know I know everybody wrote a lot about it, and it certainly wasn't an untold theme, but boy, what he went through, you know, the last two years to get through those seasons. So I would sit down with Steve and I'd say, man, I feel bad. I know you just want to go and lie down. I said, so we talked for 10 minutes about uh, politics and we talked for 10 minutes about the team usually kind of almost off the record. Like I'd Mm. say to Steve, tell me what's going on, you know. And in answer to your question, besides Steve, who is not surprising, I think a lot of times, I'm sure you found this out, Chris, is the guys who have been around the league who may not be the central characters on a team. And on the Warriors, two of those guys are Sean Livingston and David West. And I found them, every time you talk to them, really insightful, really smart, 
really plugged into the things that make a team uh, really gel. The the coach is is instrumental in in team success, and you know Steve Kerr deflects a lot of that, but there's no doubt that 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 team is what it is in part because of the influence uh, of Steve Kerr. On the flip side of it, you know Bill Sharman passed away in, in 2013, but you know when you were were kind of learning more about him, and, and I'm sure you you know, picked up things about him along the way as an, as an SI guy. What, what was his most significant impact on the, that war, that Lakers team? Well, he came into the, what you have to understand about the Lakers was that uh, despite the fact that everybody loved Jerry West and everybody loved Elgin Baylor and everybody knew Wilt Chamberlain, they were losers. That was their thing. They had lost six times in the finals to that team in Boston. The name escapes me. What what team is that up there? <laughs> the, they wear green. They wear Celtics, green. Shamrock. You know, Shamrock. Irish. Shamrocks, you know yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Six times in the finals. I mean, could you imagine how Jerry West would have gotten beaten up on social media? Oh man, at six times. Then they proceeded to lose to the Knicks in 1970. That's seven, oh for seven in the finals. Then they lost to the Bucks in the next year in the uh, semifinals. So this, Jerry West is 0 for 8 going into the season. So Bill Sharman, an ex-Celtic, by the way, comes in. Bob Cousy's partner. Exactly, Bob Cousy's partner. And, you know, Jerry said it never really bothered him that he was an ex-Celtic, but (laughs) Pat Riley said, that's bullshit. (laughs) You know, Jerry was uh, apoplectic over the fact that ex-Celtic was coaching him. Not only that, Bill Sharman brings in Casey Jones. (laughs) <laughs> you know, who was a voracious, in-your-face defender and also a Celtic. Mm-hmm. So they got two Celtic guys. I think here's what people liked about Bill Sharman. He was very, very, he, he was very much an early Steve Kerr. He was very decisive in a couple of the things he did, which I'll talk about in a second. But he did it in a I'm-not-the-whole-show manner. He did it in a kind of democratic manner. Two of the things he did, or three of the things he did was, Jerry West, you got the ball, you're going to be a point guard. It was never sure before what Jerry was. He was like a G in the scorebook, you know? Jerry, you got the ball. Gail Goodrich, you do not have the ball. Jerry's going to have to find you. Number two, Wilt, you're going to become a defender. You're going to become a passer. There's going to become games when you only take one or two shots. That's You're going to make outlet passes on the break. Uh, and number three, we're going to play fast. We're going to, we have to run. The ball is not going to stick. And to that end, you know, nine games into the season, there was a meeting and he told, he either told Elgin Baylor, he was going to the bench or he said, Elgin, uh, we want you to retire, but we're still going to pay you. It's, it's as if we, we cut you Mm. and we're going to put Jim McMillan in the lineup. And I think one of the great bittersweet things about in NBA history is that Elgin Baylor, one of the legends of the game, retired on the very day that the Lakers began their 33-game winning streak. So Bill was very, he was very decisive, and he also started a shoot-around. You know, he, I mean, Wilt never got to bed before five o'clock in the morning, and now Bill Sharman's saying, yeah, we want you to be at the gym at nine or 10, and this was a job of epic salesmanship. You know, and it's the old saying, as you know, as long as we're winning, you know, <laughs> as long as we're winning, it's going to work. And fortunately for Sharman and West and Wilt and the Lakers, 
it was a winning season. I, I want to get to a couple things about that team, but you mentioned the losses that, that piled up for Jerry West, and you're right. I mean, if he was playing, I mean, we know when LeBron lost, how many he lost, I mean, what his record is in the finals. Jerry West would be you know, probably pilloried if, uh, if he played in, in, in the social media age. But how did, how did Jerry handle losing on that big stage as often as he did? Well, not very well, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of defined uh, Jerry's. There, there's part of Jerry I didn't o- want to get overly psychoanalytical about him, but I think part he has partly a maybe guilt is too strong a word about being as celebrated as he is because you would be talking to him, and the number of times he returned to that subject of losing, you know, and he told me this one. Give me this metaphor that, I mean, he's talking about night. He goes, Elgin and I were like two kids. We're outside and we're looking at this Christmas gift inside. And there's only a window pane separating us. And it was like Christmas Day, but we couldn't quite get in to get the present. I'm going, holy smoke, you know, <laughs> that's some heavy uh, metaphorical stuff going on. And, it's, and now you got to understand, this is 50 years ago, you know. So Jerry has not, did not let that go. He had a number of times during that uh, during that run when he said he was going to thought he might retire, particularly after 1969 finals when they were clearly Russell was on fumes. It was his last season. They had uh, game seven was at the Forum in L.A. and they blew that game. And Jerry very nearly uh, quit after there after that game. But what always brought him back, you know, I end the book with him talking about. Uh, kind of reflecting on what basketball meant to him. I mean, he was a lonely kid. He had an abusive father psychologically, if if not sometimes physically. He had a lonely childhood. He had a withdrawn, introverted uh, personality. But he found basketball, and it, and it took him to places that he never thought he could go. So I, I think that he always remembered that. What in the hell else am I going to do if I don't play this game? And if anybody understood that, uh, Jerry West did. You know, one of the defining characteristics of this Warriors team in this era is that they're all, they get along really well. And, and there, there are no real egos, at least not that, that present themselves kind of uh, on the court. Uh, how, how would, there's a lot of personalities in that, in that Lakers team with with West and Elgin Baylor and and Wilt uh, among others, I mean, how how was the dynamic in that locker? How important was it for that team to be successful? Completely different. I mean, you you actually hit on it, and and I think one of the things that West, a couple times in the book and many other times that I didn't mention, West would marvel at how the how the Warriors were doing this with this kind of chemistry, mm. which was started, you know, it comes from the. It comes pretty much from Steve Kerr, but also from Bob Myers, the general manager. It's the kind of franchise that Joe Lacob and Peter Goober want, mm. but what the hell, it's the kind of franchise everybody wants. You know, you have to, you know, hey, we get along, you know, everybody's on the same page. <laughs> Starts with Kerr, goes through Bob Myers, Steph Curry, you know, plugs into that just as Tim Duncan did. So that's really a real thing with the Warriors. It's not, you know, it's not something made up. It's very, very important to that team. The 71-72 Lakers, not so much. I mean, even <laughs> Jerry said, kind of islands unto themselves. They were veteran players, first of all. 
I mean, Jerry came into the league in 1960 uh, season. Wilt came in a year before that. Um, so Elgin Baylor had come in two years before that. So this was a team defined by kind of grizzled veterans, you know, and it had a very much of a let's just get it done on the court. You know, I mean, I, I think Jerry and uh, and Wilt went out to dinner, you know, a couple times. They respected each other on the court. Don't get me wrong, but it was a completely different dynamic in terms of uh, how they handled themselves and the whole team unity feeling. Which, but then again, I think the Warriors are almost pretty unusual with that. I mean, I hung around the Suns, uh, yeah. you know, during the seven seconds or less. They were, you know, fine. They got along fine. They were together. But they were a little bit more of an island team also. I, I think the way the Warriors approach this thing is really unusual, and I think it has been part of the, uh, part of the reason they've been successful. And you got to Riley uh, for this book, and it's, I guess, almost even overlooked that he was uh, a big part of, of that team. How was he when, when, when you were talking about uh, those Laker teams? Well, Riley was probably you know, the most surprising, in a good way, interview that I had. I mean, as, as you might know, uh, you know, he's, not, he's a little elusive these days. Yeah. Uh, he was great in the 80s, by the way. I mean, when Pat was coaching the Lakers, uh, if you would get some time with Pat, he would always come away with something. I mean, he was very smart, and he was candid in his own way. He, he, also, he was also canny. He liked to send some messages through the media, but um, I said, Pat, I, I'd like to come down and talk to you about this. And, you know, took a while, but I was in his office for two hours. And I think I was just lucky. And the reason was, is that Laker team and his association with the Lakers and the fact that he ended up on that team on the basis of a $100 waiver wire that he got picked up from Portland. He was an also-ran. He comes to the Lakers he plays on a team that wins 33 straight games. Uh, he meets Jerry West. He goes back. He plays in Phoenix, but he comes back as Chick Hearns, backup announcer. He knows enough basketball. He's obviously smart that he becomes coach of the team. And the next thing you know, it's Pat Riley of the Showtime Lakers. And one of the things he told me, I'll never forget this, he's sitting in his chair and he goes, if I don't get picked up by the Lakers, uh, if they, if I don't, you know, play a role on that team, if I don't become coach of that team, he waves his hand around his palatial Miami office. He goes, who knows, maybe none of this. And his respect for Jerry West with whom he had some, uh, you know, had some tough moments when Jerry was the GM and Pat was coach. Yeah. That respect is kind of undying. Yeah. How, 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 how would you describe that relationship over the years? Well, they're two very, uh, two very strong personalities, and it will be interesting to see. Uh, take Steve Kerr, and you know, you know Steve Kerr and Bob Myers, and sure. you've certainly seen their relationship and how they're one and one a, and whether they have disagreements. I'm sure they do, but they sound like versions of the same person almost, you know, and it's part of that warrior's unity. And let me emphasize, I don't think it's an act. I don't mm. think they're putting anything on. However, as time goes on, uh, the warriors don't win. Things start to happen. They disagree on some personnel moves, which is probably going to be inevitable. How is it then? And I think Pat and Jerry 
started from a strange place. They started as teammates. You know, that's a very, very different thing when you start, you know, uh, from somewhere else, when you start as a coach and gen- when you start as coach as general manager. You know, Pat asked to come back to the Lakers mm-hmm. and when Jerry was coach, and he wanted a tryout. And Jerry said no. <laughs> said, uh, you know, you're, you're too injured. And Pat said that Jerry told him, well, you know too much about me, you know, cause referring back to when they were teammates. But Pat said Jerry was just trying to protect me from myself. He, did, he knew that my career was over even if I didn't. So when he came back, he comes back as announcer, and he comes back and they're co-coaches for a while. Well, then Jerry goes into the front office and – Pat Riley told me it was kind of astonished that one of the things that happened in the 80s as the Showtime Lakers started piling up championships and, you know, the acclaim of the basketball world, Pat says, I took too much of the credit. I had the endorsement deals. I had the speaking engagements. I had the books. And he said, I really regret doing that. And that led to kind of a, you know, a fissure in the relationship between uh, Jerry and him and eventually they patched it back back up but uh, they had some uh, they had some rough moments but perhaps that was inevitable f- for two such strong personalities and Elgin Baylor is is a big part uh, of all this and he's a guy Jack that that as you know I mean kind of went underground after uh, 2010 2011 uh, and the the end of his his tenure with the Clippers how, how did you find him? Um, when it came to talking about all uh, about the past and, and the team, that Laker team? Well, it was very early when I was doing this. I didn't even know what I, the Warriors aspect of the book hadn't even come in. And I had mm-hmm. talked to Jerry, and I was figuring I was just doing this book about Los Angeles and the Lakers of that era. And, uh, boy, I really wanted to talk to Elgin. And uh, he didn't – and, you know, I had known him a little bit, but I felt kind of guilty myself because when – Elgin went to the Clippers, you know, he had all those years under Sterling and all, you you know, it's not the Clippers of now, it's, you know, emphasize that all you ever wrote about the Clippers was negative. You know, that was the only, there was no positive association and Elgin rightly or wrongly got sucked into that. You know, Elgin doesn't know what he's doing. Elgin wears bad sweaters. You know, Elgin just takes, you know, just takes all this abuse from the worst person in the history of sports, you know, Donald Sterling. So finally Elgin says, okay, and I go up to his house in the Hollywood Hills and uh, talk to him a long time. Uh, his wife sat in, but that was okay. Uh, you know, she had helped broker the interview, I think. And and Elgin was very, to the extent that he can be, Elgin was very uh, candid. I mean, Elgin is kind of a a jokey guy, you'll get to a point with him. And I said to him, well, why don't you have a statue in front of the Staples Center? I mean, when they started building statues of the Lakers, you could argue Elgin Baylor would be the first one that put up. You know, he was the guy that made them when they came to Los Angeles. And Elgin would go, well, I regret it a little bit, but what do I want birds messing up my statue for? You know, <laughs> he, he always went so far and then had kind of a jokey aspect to it. And I just can't get quite to the bottom of why the Lakers have not shown him more respect. Jerry Buss, uh, when the idea of the statues came, 
just didn't, you know, Elgin, they were originally going to put one up of Elgin and Jerry. That was one of the ideas, but that never went anywhere. And Elgin just never got kind of the due that he, that he, uh, that he deserves. His wife knows it, but Elgin just isn't the kind of guy to bang his fist in the air and, uh, and talk about it. I could ask you specifics about everybody you've covered in this book. There's so many good stories uh, that are rented. But, you know, you've written a lot of – you've written a number of books and uh, certainly countless uh, magazine-type stories that are filled with, with, with just hilarious anecdotes. When you were reporting this, uh, this book, what was the story that you were told that just – that made you laugh, that, that made you just kind of – that you even still think of now that is, as being just incredible? I can't get out of my head. Do you? you you've come across Bill Burtka, the Lakers uh, sure. scout. You know, Bill yeah, is still Bill, around. Yeah, Bill is still around. Bill was, uh, put it this way, Bill was a scout, you know, on that Los Angeles Lakers team, like back in the late '60s. And Bill wanted to be, uh, Bill wanted to be coach of the team when they named uh, Sharman, and then he wanted to be the assistant when they named Casey Jones. <laughs> But he just kept, uh, you know, he was finally made a second assistant. He went on to coach the in New Orleans for a while before coming back to the Lakers. Anyway, what I can, I can never get this out of my head. Uh, he told me very early that Jack Kent Cook, who was the person that had bought the Canadian multimillionaire who bought the Lakers in the mid-'60s, created the forum, which he insisted be called the Fabulous Forum. He was the one that kind of, before Jerry Buss, he was the one that kind of ushered in the idea of the showplace arena and the showplace team. That's a credit to Jack Kent Cook. But he was so cheap that Bertka said he, he refused to buy a new film projector for the team. And when Sharmood would run game films, Bill had to sit by it with a pencil and hold the spool of the uh, of the reel in place. And I'm you know I started thinking about the way the NBA is now. You know, I mean, there's uh, the yeah. budgets. There's $2 million food budgets for the players to eat, you know, at the arena and the practice facility. And here is a team that won a championship and had immortal players on it uh, that couldn't get themselves a new uh, film projector. How involved were were owners back in those days? I mean, nowadays you've you've got some owners that meddle – you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say Cuban does, but Cuban's very involved. Uh, Robert Sarver certainly is very involved. Um, but the other side of it's like Peter Holt, who just sort of backs off and lets his basketball guys do their thing in today's game. In the with those Lakers team, how involved was the owner with with that group? Well, he was pretty involved in that. He always he was kind of a Jack Kent Cook was a big. And once again, I didn't. These are just stories. I didn't sure. know uh, Jack Kent Cook, but he was very much of a ceremonial type of guy. And Jerry West uh, told me that, you know, Jack would come into his office and uh, he would dread when he would hear, Jerry West, please report <laughs> to my office. You know, he was a very sort of formal guy, actually wore ascots. I mean, how many people actually wear ascots? And I, I don't think he, he didn't come down and tell Bill Sharman, you know, I think we should, uh, you know, I think we should use a little, you know, press a little bit more. He certainly never pretended to do that, but he very much got involved with ceremonies after the Lakers had beaten the all-time NBA streak of, 
I can't remember, it was 21 or 22 games at the time on their way to 33. Jack Kent Cook decided that they would have a giant ceremony at the gym <laughs> that night, and they're all going, when the hell are we celebrating? <laughs> you know, we got a whole season left to play yet, you know? And they had, you know, plaques were, you know, after the game, and plaques were given out to Jack Kent Cook. And if you ever have a chance, you have to go on and get the YouTube uh, ceremony of it. I mean, Jack Kent Cook sounds like he's introducing a game show or something uh, throughout this <laughs> ceremony. It's the strangest thing. So I don't think he, he did not, he, he wasn't Mark Cuban. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't there in the team timeout huddle or anything like that. But he very much wanted everyone to know that this was Jack Kent Cook's team. And right after the season ended, the day after they won the championship, they had a dinner at the Forum when the Lakers essentially broke up because Cook had Cook had wanted uh, Bill Sharman's playoff share to come out of the players' money. And <laughs> can you imagine that today? Yeah. And uh, well, first of all, it's negotiated by the CBA, I imagine. But um, and then told the uh, and the players said, "Well, that's you know ridiculous, but we love Bill so much, we'll do it." And then Jack Kent Cook started the story that the players refused. So. The story kind of came out, players refused to give Sharman their playoff share. Mm. And if there's one thing that united uh, the team, it was probably by the time that Jack Kent Cook was finished, their enmity for uh, Jack Kent Cook was a unifying force. I, I, I don't think taking the money out of the playoff share would fly in the uh in today's game. You think not? Probably no, not. Probably I, not. I think that would go poorly. Uh, I, I want to ask you a couple of um, uh, questions more contemporary uh, to tap your your basketball knowledge on a couple of guys you've covered extensively that have been in the news here. First is, you're one of the only people, in fact, you might be the only people person uh, to write a legitimate profile on Greg Popovich, even though, as as we read back in the day, he's not very cooperative when it, uh, when it comes to that stuff. I'm curious your opinion on Pop being so politically active. Uh, you mentioned the Warriors and how they're outspoken on a variety of topics. I mean, Pop has been incredibly proactive uh, uh, criticizing Donald Trump. Um, you know, what, what have you made of that? Yeah, I, I tell you the truth, Chris, I was surprised at that myself. I mean, Dave Zirin, the great, you know, writer for the nation, uh, you know, Pop is called, if anybody who's tried, and I have tried, and I've once in a while succeeded in getting a return call from Pop, but uh, it doesn't happen all that often. Pop calling him himself, you know, to complain about Trump. Mm. I think, uh, and I went out during the uh, during the time I was researching the book. I went out to talk to Pop because Steve Kerr had played for Pop, and he's always a good person to talk to, and he was great. I mean, you know, he he really gave me a lot of good stuff about Jerry West and a lot of good stuff about the way the Warriors play the game. Before that, you know, we went into 15 minutes off, off the record about Donald Trump. And I guess <laughs> considering what Pop what Pop says now, I can sell I tell this, we sit down on the bench and I guess I don't know whether I brought up Trump or he did. And Pop goes, I can't tell all the adjective, but he's a 6th grader. He's a 6th grader. A 6th grader is a president of our country. And I, I, all I can relate it to is that Pop told me something very interesting when I was doing that profile. Mm. He said, I'm not 
conservative. I'm not right wing. I'm not military. What my teams have is discipline. That's different. Discipline is different from being uh, militaristic or having conservative political values. Discipline is what you, or even being authoritarian, discipline is what you have when you have a franchise that's together, when you have a team, when you have people pushing together. And my guess is I have not talked about him that directly outside of that one day. My guess is that he looks at Donald Trump and the way he runs his organization, which happens to be the United States of America, and does not see that kind of discipline, and it just drives him out of his mind. And it's it's great in a way. I mean, the, the pop show is just incredible because yeah. he's getting increasingly like that, the guy on the mountain screaming against the, uh, the, the, the tides and the coming wind, you know, but I love it. And the, the other thing I wanted to ask you was you seeing kind of Phoenix, uh, the, the team that you wrote about some 10 years ago with, with D'Antoni in, in the book Seven Seconds or Less, uh, they've just completely devolved into kind of a hot mess out there. And I think people have wondered, and I've even speculated in print, that, that Steve Nash could come, come back in, in some kind of role with the team. You, you know Nash, and, and obviously he's doing some work as a player development coach up in Golden State. Do you think he has either the temperament or the skills to be either a coach or a basketball executive? And do you think that he could work for Robert Sarver uh, as, as an exec? I think if Steve, first of all, uh, I also spent some time for, with Steve for this book since mm-hmm. he, as you mentioned, he was a player development. I've never seen uh, a person more content with his life, by the way, right now. <laughs> Steve gets up, he takes tennis lessons. You know, I think, he, I think we're probably going to see him you know, when he gets to be that age, he'll probably be the over 50, you know, Western regional champion or something. You know, he's in the ocean. His kids are around. So, but we've seen that before, Chris. We've seen that story before. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. doing this, but I don't, I'm not sure. Steve would have to come in. He's not going to be an owner. So he's not going to, well, I don't know. He's got money, but I don't think he's going to be an owner. So he's always going to have to answer to somebody. But I think if Steve came back, uh, it would probably not be under Robert. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I liked Robert Sarver during that time. He was, I was doing the book. He was an interesting character. I feel incredibly bad for that organization, and particularly one of our favorites, Julie Fai, you know, the great public yep. relations director who's been, uh, been around for a long time. So I hope they would come back. Steve certainly has the skill. He certainly has the talent. The temperament would be something else. I mean, I'm not sure that Steve could ride, you know, with all the ups and downs that uh, that come with, with that job. Because at this point, to come into the Western Conference, and if your goal is, gee, we're going to try to make the playoffs in five years, boy, that's a long mountain to climb. And my guess is, my best guess is that Steve right now is just going to see his kids at least... <laughs> get to uh get get through high school but that's just a guess right well jack uh the book is terrific golden days west lakers steph's warriors and the california dreamers who reinvented basketball it's available now everywhere amazon barnes and noble you name it uh you can go get it uh congratulations jack another terrific book and uh thanks for joining me here on the podcast 
Had a great time, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. He hasn't really distinguished himself. Chris is in desperate need of validation. I think your opinion is shared by everyone. So please, subscribe, like, comment. I I would punch him. That's that's just my opinion. (laughs) At your earliest convenience in the iTunes store. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.